Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would bring life to these words to us, your children. Father, that we would be edified because of this, knowing that no matter if you convict us by your word or if we receive comfort by your word, Father, the truth is, is that your word is working in our lives as proof that we are yours. Father, I know that I have nothing of myself to say that is of any value. I'm asking, Lord, that you would guard my lips, that everything that I say, Lord, would glorify you, that I would not stray from your meaning and from your message to your people. Lord, I need to hear from you as much as anybody else in this room. So, Father, speak to us. Teach us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began investigating the appointment that Jesus had with this unnamed Samaritan woman. On the surface, it would seem that Jesus having a casual conversation that probably lasted less than 15 minutes must be of little to no consequence. We have short conversations all the time. We can be standing in the grocery store and chatted up with the person behind us, or we can have a conversation with people in the park. These aren't noteworthy, even if we do talk about the Lord. So why did John see this conversation to be of such importance that he handpicked it to write about it in his gospel. The even more important and relevant question, though, is why would God desire this conversation, chosen from a multiplied thousands, maybe millions of conversations that Jesus had, to be written down, to be remembered, to be studied, well, there are a number of reasons. One, God knows people. He knows that we are fickle, that we are in our sinful state predisposed to see one ethnicity as better or of more importance or value than another. He also knows that because of our sinful state that we will elevate one of the two sexes, and yes, there are only two, above the other. The account of the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus and then the account between Jesus and this woman are strikingly similar. Even though the people that Jesus was speaking with couldn't have been any more different than one another. Nicodemus was a he and she was a she. He was a Jewish man of wealth, prominence, highly educated, who was a leader within the religious community. He was what we would call a man of God. 
She was a Samaritan woman, which would have been two strikes against her right out the gate. First, that she was a second-class citizen and that she was a woman, and then she was of that hated ethnic class called the Samaritans. She was uneducated, unlearned, had no power, no position, no wealth, and to make matters even worse, she was an immoral woman. She is, or was, what we would call a tramp. There could be no two people more different from each other than these two. And yet, the gospel message that Jesus presents to both of them is the same. We need to hear this, to let this sink in. He presented the same message to both of them, irregardless of their education, irregardless of their station in life. The same message, the same truth. We all, every one of us, are sinners. And we all have biases against others. To deny this fact is to, God, is to call God a liar. And to make both accounts, Nicodemus and this woman, of no account. One of the things that we are meant to take away from this account is that the sheep that Jesus has are all the same. They're all human. We're all human. And we're all under the same curse for the same reason. And for this reason, we all have need or the same need for the same salvation by the same Savior. One other thing that we need to grasp, to think on, is as Jesus didn't seek out the rich Jewish religious male leader. He made that man come to him. But he had to go to Samaria. Verse 4. He sought out this woman and these people. Let us think on this and then allow the Lord to apply it to our lives, to our biases. Let us be cross-cultural in our dealings with all people. The other thing that I don't want to fail to highlight is found in verses 23 and 24. Let's look at those. Jesus told this woman, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He then went on to tell her that the Samaritans worshipped that which they didn't know, and that the Jews worshipped that which they did know, and that they were both wrong in how they worshipped God. This charge still stands against the church in the Western Hemisphere and perhaps even some of us in this room. We may say that we love God, and maybe we do, that we worship him in spirit and truth. And for this reason, we focus hard on that spirit part, being hyper-directed at the works of the spirit, 
desiring to see, to experience, to have the Spirit direct our lives. One way that you can know that this might be you is that you use the word feel a lot when speaking about the Lord. If this is us, we are worshiping that which we don't know. Or we might worship God by focusing in on Jesus. We are, after all, under the dispensation of grace and know that he was sent as our mediator, as our big brother, our example of how we should live. We can live by the mantra that it is all just Jesus. If this is us, we are worshiping that which we do know, but worshiping wrong. We tend to be, as R.C. Sproul said, woefully ignorant of the Old Testament. And for this reason, we are profoundly ignorant of the character of God the Father. We think that our worship should focus on and be directed to Jesus. Now, there is a sense that we should never desire to get past the cross of Christ. And yet, we have to remember that it was at that cross that Jesus reconciled us to his Father, that he came to do his Father's will, and that all that do come to him for his salvation are given him by his Father. And his sole desire was to glorify his Father, so much so that his statement to the woman at the well was not that the Messiah is seeking those that worship, to, worship in spirit and truth, not that the gift of God, that living water, the Spirit, was seeking those that worship, those that will worship him in spirit and truth. He, the gift giver, the propitiation maker, desired for this woman and us to look to and worship the Father in spirit and truth. And what did he mean by spirit and truth. Again, there are places in worship in this very town at this very hour that claim to be spirit-filled, spirit-directed, and will do acts that they say are evidence of this. They are correct. These acts and these things are spirit-led and directed, just not the Holy Spirit-led and directed a point that seems to be lost in translation with them. And if we're desiring an example of what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth, we have no further to look than Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Turn with me there, please. This is the account of what flowed out of Mary when she was told that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit and give birth to Christ. Luke 1. Beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy 
is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Her life, how she acted, how her heart swelled with love for the Father, are all examples of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And don't allow yourself to paint this fairy tale impression concerning the lot that Mary was given. Her life was not easy. Yes, she would be given, or she would give birth to the promised Savior of the world. And she would come to know this Savior as her Savior. And so she would benefit from his birth. But the task of bringing the Messiah into our realm cost her. It cost her her reputation for the rest of her life. It almost cost her her marriage if the Lord had not intervened. And it cost her through the personal pain of watching not only her Lord and Savior suffer humiliation, torture, and then public death, but also her son. And still, this was the heart that she had towards the Father. This brings me to the truth part of how the Father is worshiping those that are to worship him. There has never in the history of the Christian church been a time when the church has been allowed more experimental worship than today. Almost anything and everything goes. Smoke machines, interpretive dancing, inspired painting, spirit-filled flag-waving, t-shirt guns, rolling on the ground, clucking like chickens, barking like dogs, happy birthday songs, happy anniversary songs, walking aisles, secular music, whatever it takes to bring people in and to make the crowd happy, to entertain them. Gospel-centered, gospel-driven preachers have been replaced by pollsters, doing whatever the crowd desires as long as they are happy and the seats are being filled. They've been replaced by cowardly motivational speakers, afraid to confront, who are willing to butcher the truth of God's word to provide sermonettes for Christianettes, just as long as they aren't bored, just as long as sin is never mentioned, and just as long as the goats leave feeling good about themselves. But what's wrong with doing what works? Doing what people want. Especially in, if in doing so, you draw large numbers of people. I mean, isn't that the point of doing this? And after all, doesn't the Bible chronicle a worship service to God that was completely designed to serve the felt needs of the masses, that pleased almost everyone in the entire region, that drew nearly a million people in one setting? 
and which collected more money than any other service had ever done. It does. That worship service is found in Exodus 32. It's the service put on by Aaron for the people. That's what the people wanted. He gave them the golden calf, and he said to them, Behold your God. And he was right. That was their God, and how they worshipped it was correct. But that was not God, and he would not accept false worship, people-pleasing worship. This was not worshiping in spirit and truth. God, the Father, who has given us his Son, who has given us his Spirit, is seeking those that will worship him in spirit and truth. His Spirit, which magnifies the truth of his proclaimed word. He is seeking those who will be satisfied, edified, and fulfilled in worshiping him as he has commanded them. Lord, make us such as these. And I've admonished you before to never skip past the human element within the Bible. The events and accounts that are chronicled all happen to real people. This account is no different. The disciples of Jesus had to have been challenged when, they t when he told them that they were not going on the Transjordan Highway around Samaria, but that he had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. They had to have been even more challenged when after traveling more than a few hours into Samaria, he stops and tells them, I want you to go to Sychar and buy some groceries from us, for us, which is something that they could have done the day before in Israel. And now, they just walked up on Jesus as he's finishing up with a conversation with this Samaritan woman. We don't know how much, if any, of the conversation they heard, which just might be why they wanted to ask her, what do you seek? But they had sense enough not to ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? Even though they desired to, nor her, what do you seek? The question that they wanted to ask her wouldn't have been stated in a nice way. Basically, what they wanted to do is walk up to her and say, what makes you think that you have a right to speak to Jesus? Why are you bothering him? Go away. But there's an interesting parallel in their unspoken question, though, because they themselves had been given, had been asked this very question by Jesus in chapter 1, verse 36. When two of them started following him, he turned and asked them, what do you seek? But here they wisely says nothing as she walked away. They just stood there, troubled in spirit, deep in thought, wondering what was going on. Verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This immoral, shunned woman who had walked all the way out to Jacob's well, 
to collect water for our household has now forgotten everything about the temple, including her water jug and her social status. And she's fled back to the place where she's from to tell people, all people, about the man that she had just met who promised much more than water from a well. She was more than intellectually challenged by Jesus. What he had said to her had more than just made her feel good or feel anyway. She believed that this man was at least from God. And by her question to the town folks, she was very hopeful that he was the Messiah. Again, there's another parallel found here. In chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, we're told of one of the first disciples, Philip, telling Nathanael, a man that Jesus himself said was a true Israelite with whom there was no gall about Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets foretold, Jesus the Nazareth, of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Nathanael was not convinced by Philip, but Philip gave him the same command that this woman has now given the people in Sychar. Come and see. Just like with the encounter with Nicodemus, another of the chosen people of God, Nathanael was less than enthusiastic concerning Jesus and far less interested in him than these Samaritan people were. What she told them, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did was hyperbole. But it does speak to how deep and personal her encounter with Jesus was. And she doesn't speak to the people in Sychar like a theologian. Her theology had never been good. But what she does is speak as a witness to someone whom she didn't understand, but who understood her. And what she asked the townspeople, could this be the Christ, wasn't so much a challenge to the statement that Jesus had made when he said, I who speak to you am he, but more of a challenge to the Samaritans to consider something that they had never considered before. Could the Messiah, their Messiah, could he be a Jewish Messiah? Again, Think about this count in reality. These people were challenged. And these people all had lives, just like us. And they all worked to survive and worked a lot. And you add to that that they had a very low opinion of this woman. And you have to marvel at the fact that they dropped everything, all that they were doing, to come and see for themselves. This proves that the quality of the witness, the immoral woman, doesn't matter compared to the quality of the one that the witness is speaking about. Let that be a reassurance to us. It doesn't matter what station we are in life, what sex we are, what ethnicity we are. We, if we preach the risen Christ, God the Father, that's going to make the difference. John changes focus in verses 31 through 33. 
back to the disciples and to Jesus. This account is written with overlapping events happening. The disciples leaving to get food overlapped with the woman coming to the well. They probably passed each other on the road. The disciples coming back overlapped with the woman leaving the well. And their conversation, her conversation with the townspeople and them coming out to him overlaps with our next verses. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food, anything to eat? These verses have been a source of confusion for some theologians. What did Jesus mean when he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about? Is he saying that he doesn't need food? He doesn't need nourishment because he's doing the work of the Father? There are plenty of those super spiritual types that are out there that will attest that that is, in fact, what he meant. They will give you stories of how they went days on end without eating because they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when they were doing the work of God. And he was their nourishment. Hogwash. This interaction is given to remind us of the fact that everyone is spiritually blind until the Lord opens their eyes. Think back. The Jews in chapter 2 think that Jesus is speaking about the physical earthly temple in Jerusalem when he says that he will raise it in three days. Nicodemus thought that Jesus was talking about actual physical second birth in chapter 3. The woman at the well thought that Jesus was talking about actual water, when in fact he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And the disciples think that his answer to them concerning food and eating is temporal, is earthly. That he was saying that the work of his father was all that he needed to survive but he is schooling them with the same lesson that he schooled the woman at the well with. She was forced out of her comfort zone and was put out by his command of, give me a drink. She thought that she was going out of her way in providing this man something to drink. He told her, you may be able to give me water, but I can give you living water. They, the disciples, had been forced out of their comfort zone in going to Sychar and may have been put out by having to do so. They thought that they were going out of their way by bringing him food. And he told them, you may be able to bring me food, but I am going to give you eternal food. I am the bread of life. Verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. If his statement to the disciples in verse 32 confused them, this statement must have really confused them. Jesus is pointing to something much more important than physical nourishment, much more important than even water that came from rocks in the Old Testament or manna that came from heaven. He is pointing to and desiring for his disciples to see the importance of the heavenly, of the eternal, and to realize the prominence of living a life in service to his Father, and the joy, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that it brings. He's using the temporal, the earthly, 
something that we all know about, eating, drinking, and being fulfilled in them as an allegory or an example, pointing to the truth of knowing and worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. There's one more consideration to grasp in our story. Part of the reason why the disciples wanted Jesus to eat was that they were pretty hungry themselves after going to Sychar and then back. And now it was well past the lunch hour and they couldn't eat until their master did. Sorry. The Samaritans, the Sychar, the ones who the women had went to, the woman they went to and told about Jesus, they had gotten to eat their lunch. They were full. They had their bellies filled. But once this woman told them about the man who had told her everything that she had ever done, they experienced another kind of hunger. The kind of hunger that caused people to abandon everything else in search of the filling of that hunger. And now they were on the move, coming to be fed. The disciples may have been physically hungry, but they had already been fed. The spiritual. They already had Christ in their midst. Jesus then goes on and says this in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is the master teacher. The fact that his disciples spent most of their time with him in confusion doesn't speak to his teaching ability. It speaks to his deity. They didn't understand simply because they were sinners, selfish, self-absorbed, just like us. It took being with Jesus, sitting at his feet, allowing him to increase in them, for them to start to see the truth, the reality of the things that he taught, the reality of the fulfillment that comes in service to the Heavenly Father. They didn't understand what he said concerning the food that satisfied him. They stood there with a loaf of bread in their hands, extending it to him, saying, you know, Rabbi, you need to eat, trying to figure out what he meant, and then he just changed the subject on him. He started talking about harvesting of food. Now, theirs was an agrarian society. And even those that lived by fishing, like most of the disciples, or by the law, or who were soldiers, all knew about farming. It was the lifeblood of their community. We no longer live in agrarian society, even here. So the planting and harvesting images that Jesus uses in his Gospels have lost some of their meaning with us. But these men knew all about growing food. Not in a second-hand way. They had grown up tilling the ground, toiling, planting seeds, tending the fields, praying for rain and a good harvest, and then working hard in harvesting the crop. They knew that you didn't reap or harvest the rewards of your hard work in planting right away. There was four months of waiting, praying, expecting, and then the harvest came. Jesus begins this verse with his disciples gathered around him, speaking to them. 
And then in the midst of his conversation, he points outward. And he gives them three commands. The first is to look. And then he emphasizes what he means in saying look by telling them to lift up your eyes, which is the second command. And then he finishes by giving the third command. See. The strange thing is, is that there, if there were any fields around Jacob's well, they wouldn't have been ready for harvest. The disciples had been sitting there going, I'm looking, I'm looking up, I'm looking to see, but there's nothing to harvest here. Jesus was directing their attention to a field that was white for harvest. That was ready to be gathered in. A field that he had just planted, that he had just watered, that he had cared for, a field that in that moment was ready to be harvested, a field that they couldn't yet see, and a field that when they did see it would have caused them alarm, a field that was on the move, a field that was a horde of Samaritans on their way. Verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. The sowing and reaping spoken of here is unique in a few ways. One is in its lack of delay. The second is that the fact that the sower doesn't work independently of the reaper, but they work in conjunction with each other. This grand work is promised in Amos 9.13, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. This promise depicted a harvest so grand, so amazing, that the harvester was collecting the fruit from the seed that the sower had just planted. This is the harvest that Jesus is pointing to at that moment. It's a spiritual harvest, an eternal harvest, one that produces food for eternal life. What is going to be harvested is people, God's people, his elect, his chosen sons. This is what God has hungered and thirsted for. From the very beginning, the world that God so loved that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus continues explaining about this harvest in verses 37 and 38. He says, For here this saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus here once ensured that the disciples understand that they will be harvesting an abundant harvest. But it wasn't their harvest. They hadn't sown. They hadn't cultivated, but they were giving the honor, the privilege, the command to harvest God's crop. And he was revealing to them the gospel once again. They would soon see that their small, ethnocentric Messiah was much more grand than they could ever imagine. Because he was truly the Savior, not of Israel but of the world. 
And Jesus may have been speaking in ways that caused these men to miss his meaning, but he wasn't speaking past them. He wasn't speaking in riddles or in ways that they couldn't understand. They may have misunderstood his meaning at the time, but they shouldn't have. He didn't intend them to. He had sent them to Sychar to buy food. He had sent them to a people that they had disdain for, a bias against, even hatred for. He'd sent them to buy food. Remember, these are the same people that are now coming towards them because of one woman's testimony. While they were there, he was providing food, spiritual food, to that Samaritan woman. This was the point of the sowing and the reaping. They had been sent to the Samaritans, sent to reap a harvest from them. But instead of giving them spiritual food, the food that satisfies for all eternity, the food that they knew, that they said that they believed, they kept their mouths shut, did only what they had been instructed to do. They had fulfilled their duty, but they had missed their calling. How often does this speak of us? How many times do we complete our given task, knowing all the while we're supposed to be reaping or sowing, having the Spirit just tugging on our heart, saying, open your mouth. We may make small talk, chat it up with these people, but we will not open our mouths concerning the eternal. And who does this hurt? Not the person that we're with. God's going to bring another more faithful slave to, fill, to fulfill that task. Us not reaping or sowing only hurts us. We are the ones that lose that reward in the privilege of seeing God bring in his harvest. And here in verse 37 and 38, he is answering both of the unstated questions of the disciples. To the Samaritan woman, they, they wanted to ask, what do you seek? And to Jesus, why are you talking with her? She was part of that harvest that was white, and he was doing the will and the work of his father. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me all that I ever did. John now redirects our attention from Jesus and his disciples standing at the well back to the Samaritans who are heading their way. In this verse, we are told that many believed in Christ simply because of the testimony of a woman. Once again, I want to caution you to understand what this verse is saying. The testimony that the woman gave wasn't the storied tale of her decline in social status as she was cast aside from one man to another until she found herself as a social outcast, a societal pariah. Her testimony was about the one that had told her all that she had ever done. The power of salvation is not found in your story of salvation in your story of how bad you were, or even in how good you were. 
the power of any testimony is only found in the one that we testify about. And because of this, we should never be disappointed when there is not an immediate harvest that happens, even if we get the testimony completely, perfectly right. It's not our harvest to, or our crop to harvest. It's God's crop, and he will plant, he will water, he will cultivate, and even bring in his harvest at his time. But we, like this woman, are merely being used to assist in that harvest. And look at the great joy that it brought this woman to do that. Is this the same heart that you have concerning evangelism? Is it mine? Are we super excited by the one that tells us all that we have ever done, that offers living water to us, that has given himself as the bread of life? Do we drop everything that we are doing, like this woman did, to tell others about the one who has changed everything in our lives? And the telling is not so much so or for the benefit of others or even for our benefit. The telling is just the natural outpouring of the love of God that is shown to us in reconciling us to him. It's in this love, in this joy, that our desire is to tell others. Not for others. That's not why we evangelize. Because even if there were no others around, and you, anybody that has ever experienced being in love understands this. Man, even if there's no one else around to be able to tell about the love that you feel, you might end up telling your dog, your cat, trees, birds, our goats, about the one that saved us, the one that is the lover of our soul. It's in the desiring to elevate, to highlight, to extol, to glorify the God that saved a wretch like me, that has satisfied my soul with himself. This is the reason for the telling, for the reason in the going. What happens because of you going and telling? Those are up to the master. He's the one who has planted water, cultivated, and will reap the harvest. In this instance, he indeed had a field that was white for harvest. Verses 40 and 41. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. You have to wonder what was going through the heads of the disciples as they saw this mob crest the rise and then keep moving towards them at a rapid pace. And once they got there, that age-old ethnic divide had to be very evident. The Jewish disciples standing on one side, the inquisitive Samaritans standing on the other, and in the middle, the man that would unite them for all time. And very rarely are we ever told of such a welcome with Israel when Jesus showed up. Think about when he came to the land of the Gadarenes, those that were a mixture of Jews and the, um, from the tribe of Gad with the Gentiles, and he healed that demon-possessed man. 
There too the locals came out to meet him. Only there they asked him to leave. But here, now, these people reach out to this Jewish Messiah, asking him to stay with them and teach them. In essence, they are desiring to become disciples, to become the same as the disciples were, one in Christ. Verse 42, they said, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard our, for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Lord had prepared this field. He had planted it, cultivated it, watered it, and then he brought it to harvest, where many came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Not the Samaritan Messiah, and not the Jewish Messiah, but the true Messiah, their Messiah all because Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with an immoral, socially outcast woman. A woman who came and told them about a man that had told her everything that she had ever done. And that was all they needed. They were more than right for the picking. They believed. They didn't believe the woman nor even the account that she told them. They believed in the one that she told them about and went to him to learn more about him. This is, it is in this setting that verses 41 and 42 are given us. As Jesus and his disciples stayed with them for two days and he taught them the truth of the kingdom, the truth of the Messiah that was Jewish, but was not the Jewish Messiah, nor the Samaritan Savior, but was the Savior of the world. It was in this setting that the testimony of woman concerning this God-man was surpassed by their own first-hand knowledge of him. This is what it looks like for a regenerate person as they walk with the Lord. You may have come to know the Lord through your parents, or through a friend's testimony. And at first, your knowledge of the Savior is linked with that friend or with your parents. But for the true disciple, the truly regenerate, your relationship moves from being secondhand experiences to firsthand knowledge. As you sit at the feet of the one true Savior of the world. Once again, John ends the account with this group seemingly in the middle of it. There is no closure, no ending, good or bad. It just ends. He did the same thing with the account of the, with the Samaritan one, woman while Jesus was sitting at the well. He did the same thing with Nicodemus in Jesus' late night encounter in Jerusalem. There is one common denominator in all these accounts, the one that these people are dealing with. And because of this, John couldn't end the accounts and then move on because he is following the real main character in his gospel, the main character that is written of beginning in the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And all through these books, 
the main character is shown to be doing the same thing, seeking those that his father has given him, seeking those that will worship his father in spirit and truth, from the righteous Abraham all the way to the tribulation saints. We are supposed to see that our story is not our story. It is his. We are part of his story, part of history. Our account, our life may end without closure, may end suddenly, in the middle of something, at least in this temporal realm. But because we are his, because we have been given that living water, been given that bread of life, when our account seemingly ends here, it actually just begins in heaven and for all eternity. That's what we're supposed to focus on. Not the temporal, the food, the water, the temple, or the things of this world. We are meant to see through the accounts of Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the disciples, and even the Samaritans, that we are to focus on the eternal. In the person of Jesus, the entire world is confronted with the inadequacy of its resources. The food that we have doesn't satisfy. The water that we drink, we still get thirsty. The houses that we build fall apart. In comparison, Jesus gives us an overabundant riches in the gifts of God which are international in scope and cross-cultural in character. Only the Lord can meet the needs of the spiritually destitute and the eternally dehydrated. Only God can give these that seek what truly satisfies them, a food and drink of greater quality and quantity than anyone could ever imagine. And this is all rooted in the overflowing of the love found within the triune God. And the only natural outpouring of those that it's directed towards is to worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray.